Welcome to the Swampflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are a movie podcast, once again recording from the desolate, post-apocalyptic hellscape of a summer blockbuster season, where we have been avoiding new releases and basically regressing into Criterion Channel picks for weeks on end on this podcast. Both versions of the show have been like Criterion picks over and over and over again. And uh, I can't say that I've found much to be enthused about myself out there in the world. Um, to correct this, I last night went to the French Quarter to go to a stoner metal show. Nice. I saw Yob and Paul Ooh. Bearer. I guess they're nice. doom metal. I don't know. That's slow, like funeral march style yeah. of metal. The good stuff. And uh, so I'm kind of like low energy today. You know, I head banged a little. I, I drank some alcohol. I'm a man in my 30s. I can't uh, do that and bounce back the next day. You know, what are you drinking right now? I am actually having a hair of the dog cider nice after nice. sleeping it off all day and counteracting it with caffeine and water and Allie, what kind of tea are you drinking because you mentioned you were drinking tea yeah i've got a sleepy time going on not that i'm going to sleep but i just don't want to have caffeine right now understandable without exaggeration today i had an entire pot of hot coffee that i brewed in like a french press and then i had the cold brew coffee that you buy at the local grocery store with a little squeezy bottle and then i had oh my god two tall glasses of unsweetened tea at lunch oh and then god. uh at the end of lunch i had a double espresso and i'm still barely making it right now how are you not like having oh my a heart god. attack <laughs> you, that to me that just sounds like a wednesday but i know that that's abnormal for many people right <laughs> i'm currently drinking a fizzy water a regular water and a um, electrolyte, which is a local grocery version brand of like Pedialyte with emergency in it. Wow. I take it you're in good health right now. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Well, you know, um, my sinuses are, uh, they're definitely producing, you know, um, if that's my like crop for the year, then like we're way ahead of schedule, but I'm doing okay. Well, partly because I went to go to a metal show last night. Uh, I watched a documentary from 2008 called Until the Light Takes Us, which is a documentary about the black metal scene in late 80s and early 90s um, Norway. Yeah, it's something. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's got like really high praise and people seem to like it more than the narrative version of that story, which is Lords of Chaos from yeah. 2018. But I actually preferred the less true one with Rory Culkin, um, or is it Kiernan Culkin? It's the younger one, Kiernan. It's whatever Culkin. The baby Culkin. Um, because that movie, I think, made fun of these kids for being like edge lords and bigots, and yeah. kind of you know fucking up a lot and not being as cool as their self promotion made them look. Mm -hmm. The documentary from '08 is basically this like cheap digital thing where they just set up cameras and let these like kids talk at length. Oh my god! And um, yeah. basically explain the hateful ideology behind all the church burnings and murder mm -hmm. and uh, publicity stunts that made them infamous in the first place. I'm not familiar with any of this at all. Oh, okay. Well, it's interesting stuff if you like, you know, Nazis who make metal. Essentially, I saw Green Room, but that's about it. That's more of a Portland problem yeah. than a Norway problem. So, okay, basically the ideology behind this stuff is like these kids are 
pissed at Christians for erasing Norwegian culture. Get in line. Yeah, they have a start of an idea there where it's like, it's fucked up that all these old European customs were absorbed and then basically obliterated by Christianity. I guess I'm just thinking of Varg then being a Nazi. Yes. So they, they interview Varg in prison. Um, he, he killed a man. Uh, one of his bandmates and fellow scenesters was uh, murdered by him. So he's in prison for, I think, like 20 years. And they're, they're interviewing him. And he goes a step further where it's like, you know, Christianity erased our true culture. And, you know, it's a Jewish religion. So dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And the movie wow. just kind of lets him talk at length with these like kind of return to white nationalist bullet points without any pushback or criticism. which sucks because it's just basically like giving him a platform to like make himself sound cool and smart when he's basically a Nazi who will be out of jail and still has an internet connection and basically records a bunch of albums under the name Burzum. Yeah. Like he still has a platform even though he he was arrested for murder. He still has a platform and fans. So. And the churches they burned as publicity stunts. Like some of them were like actual historical art pieces. Yeah. They were like centuries old staples of local architecture also the movie does not include a lot of black metal music it doesn't no uh it's got a lot of like lo-fi electro kind of like lo-fi hip-hop beats to study to kind of sounds uh going on in there which you know is funny because like black metal is lo-fi enough you know we we don't need the electro in there there was a distinct point where i was watching the film and i was like this is kryptonite to boomer specifically because yeah. I, I know you don't like metal very much, specifically because some of the scene does have these sort of like fascist leanings. I'd say there's a lot more leftist, like cool yeah, people in metal than you'd expect. So many. Um... It's a very wide scene. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, these like actual Nazi edgelord kids are talking about specifically how they would buy the worst sounding microphones and amplifiers they could to like basically blow out every piece of equipment to get like the crunchiest, nastiest sound they could out of the guitars. It's like, who didn't when they were a teenager, okay? Well, to me, that is incredibly charming, that part of it. Like, I really like the the DIY homemade feel of those riffs. And there are a lot of great bands in the scene. I I don't want to throw them all under the umbrella of art. I was going to say, I've always wanted to like it more, and I've always been like, oh, but... I don't even know where to start. There's so much. There's so much of it, and you know, unlike Boomer, that's not my kryptonite. I I actually have listened to quite a bit of metal, so it's like ah, but yeah, it's always been the whole Varg thing that I'm like, uh, it's hard to get past hey, that. The riffs are still monstrous and like the beautiful, soaring. Yeah, you know? like they they sound really big, even though the equipment is cheap. Mm-hmm. It's just like. Every one of those bands, you actually have to read the lyrics <laughs> to see where they're coming from, because some of it is like extremely white nationalist, and it's more than you expect. I remember specifically the first time I found that out, I was listening to a band called Gestapo 666, which I took as a joke. Oh, yeah. I was about to be like, how did you not know, Brandon? I thought it was being a sarcastic edgelord kind of thing. Like, what's the most, like, evil name we could come up with? Yeah, I was going to say, because there's a lot of bands that do that, too. Right. Like Dying Fetus or something like that, you know? Yeah. Like It's a name that's supposed to offend. Um, and then you actually, like, read the lyrics 
to the tracks. You're like, oh, no, they're 100 percent serious. This isn't just edgelords. They. uh, Yeah. okay. there's an ideology behind it, which is worse. And the movie, I don't think, pushes back enough against that. If it does have an editorial point of view in any way, it's just like showing how small and uncool their lives look like to the naked eye, like without all the zine, like Xerox imagery they uh, came up with, like that corpse paint, black and white aesthetic they came up with is really beautiful. And once you strip that away and just show them as these kind of like long haired nerds and these like unimpressive apartments and in Vark's case, his jail cell. Uh, it's a real freaking nice jail cell. Like, yeah, he seems to be fine. He's yeah. like treating it like a retreat, basically, uh, which is infuriating because yeah. <laughs> you want him to suffer. So anyway, kind of a mixed bag of a movie. Uh, there's probably better material out there if you want to learn about the scene. And I would suggest Lords of Chaos as being like a preferable version of this in a cinematic presentation as well. Where does Lords of Dogtown fall in all of this? Is it related at all? No. <laughs> I believe that's a skateboarding movie. Yeah, that's but a skateboard I've not seen movie. <laughs> all the habits of the youth are the same to me. Yeah. <laughs> all the hobbies, I mean. All the hobbies of the youth are the same to me. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll make the joke. Okay, boomer. <laughs> yeah, in this, in this case, appropriate. <laughs> you get one an episode. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... I watched another mediocre movie from the 80s called uh, The Last Starfighter, which I had seen before, but it's been a long time. I, I bristle. I bristle. But okay, go on. I wouldn't consider that a mediocre movie, but I also haven't seen it in long enough that I can't, I can't say that you're wrong. It's also cheap and it's charming because it's trying to like... Yeah, I agree. Compete with Star Wars and Tron and like these kind of like much better funded sci-fi fantasy movies from around that time. And I think its core story is pretty charming. It's about this kid in a trailer park who can't afford to like move away to college. And while all of his like slightly better off friends with like lower ambition are partying on the beach, he's mad because he has to like work and he blows off steam by playing the trailer parks, communal arcade machine. It's like, you know, stand up arcade cabinet. And uh, the game is basically like a ripoff of Star Wars, like specifically the ending of the first one. Or is it the second one where Luke blows up the Death Star in that X-Wing sequence? It's the fourth one, Brandon. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it's the first one. You, you got it. So the game is like a early CG rendering of that. Uh, it would have looked very advanced for an arcade cabinet at the time, but once uh, the movie enters that world uh tron style um it becomes like very dated cg in a charming way because it it was like the first movie to use at least they claim to be the first movie that uses like entirely computer graphics environments instead of just like doing one detail here or there or like cleaning something up it's like a fully immersed world where someone's like interacting with like completely computer generated real world environments uh, the real world being outer space where people are shooting lasers at aliens. Because uh, it turns out the arcade cabinet is actually a recruitment a tool. device, yeah. yeah. So he's really good at this video game. It turns out aliens planted it on Earth to find people who would be very apt to shoot their lasers and their um, space jets. And uh, he goes into like a war with these like rubber-masked alien creatures who are fighting each other and he he like saves the day with his crucial joystick skills 
it's fine. I, I don't think it's like as good as I remembered it being, but I, I did like returning to it after seeing Steven Spielberg's adaptation of Ready Player One, which actually is a movie I really like, and I know most people despise with all their hearts. I don't know. It just kind of makes me sad because it's like, well, now we'll never get any sort of a Snow Crash adaptation. I don't know what that is because I'm not a quote-unquote fanboy. I am a quote-unquote hater, which is the binary set up in that film. Oh, okay. Well, no, this is... This nerd shit is like beyond me. No, well, I don't care about book. it. this is a book. It's a book nerd shit, okay? Okay. Is it Gibson? No, it's Stevenson. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I don't know what that has to do with Ready Player One. It's the same but story, I'll believe essentially. You. Oh, well, that's... I mean, that's basically what this is. It's like... But, but not written by someone who read creepy sex poetry about a woman in his poetry class to her. So I think the problem is that the book is the bullshit. Like the book is nerd boy fantasy bullshit. And I think the movie actually adapts the book as a dystopian thing. And it's like, look how sad it is that culture has stalled and has gotten stuck in decades old IP. It's funny. That is that's not what nerds care how about. I took it at all. Like I wish it had been more. Did that world that look that's fun to reading. live in you? No, it like, did look. Did it look fun to live in? No, there it, it, it looked not, horrible. It was like a nightmare. Yeah, no, it did look fun to live in, but I do feel like it was a little too excited about its premise. I think, and I guess this is what I was getting to is that in the last Starfighter, it's charming that this nerd boy has this fantasy. It's like a power fantasy that, like, this is why people play video games in the first place. It's <laughs> like this escapist power where it's like I am the greatest at this, and it's like transcending my mundane life. And then by the time Ready Player One is adapted, it's like the nerds have actually already won the culture war. They're not being dunked in the toilets for liking Star Wars. Like Star Wars is printed on every T-shirt at Target. Like it's everywhere. It's owned by the largest media company in the world. And you're not allowed to go 10 days of your life without thinking of Star Wars one way or another. Yeah, like they've already like won. The biggest sitcom of the past 15 years was all about that culture. It's not right. outsider art anymore. It's not outsider culture. It is the culture. The trick is just making you think that it's the outsider culture so that you have some weird tribalism about it. And I think the way that Spielberg brought that to life was like adapting it the same way that he shot Minority Report and AI. Like it feels like that version of dystopian sci-fi. Oh, it's got yeah. the same visual aesthetic and the same feel. AI, and it just I like it. it just really shows how sour and grim that worldview is in the current cultural context yeah so i think the two movies like communicate with each other in that way where it's like this is what used to be charming and fresh and like kind of an underdog story versus like basically gloating about how cool the stuff you were into before everyone was into it is and how much better knowledgeable you are about all the little easter eggs and histories behind the stuff um also, I watched the uh, behind-the-scenes featurette on the DVD. I don't know why I did this. Uh, but all of the people who worked on the movie complained that they were given this, like, six-month window to complete all these impossible effects work, and they were just working, like... Oh, my God. Gnarly, 100-hour-a-week work schedules or whatever, and just, like, really going into overdrive for, like, undercompensated uh, labor to hit this artificial deadline... And that's another way in which the movie industry has only gotten more grim, where like what they were doing was experimental and trying to create this new version of modern filmmaking. And now if you look at 
every movie that's out right now. It's all IP from decades ago, and it's all computer graphics and all underpaid labor that was rushed to completion because of some artificial deadline Disney just kind of conjured out of thin air. And the movies are like rushed to market before they're actually complete. And it's like that has also gotten more grim. Like it's not just a bunch of nerds behind keyboards trying to like carve out a new artistic tool. It's like that is what everyone does all of the time now. And the movies have become so homogenized based on that model that there's really not much room left on like American screens right now for like good art to even counterbalance it. Like my local art house theater is playing like all the, you know, all the superhero movies and the Mario's and the little mermaids right now. There's like really no space left for anything I would be interested in. Genuinely. I had a, I had a moment when I, I, I'm not going to jump ahead and talk about what I went and saw in theaters this week, right? This moment. But I pulled up to this particular theater and I looked at the marquee and these were the words I saw elemental, which is the new Disney movie, the flash transformers, Spider-Man, the little mermaid, fast X, and Guardians of the Galaxy. And a little part of me died because there was like nothing but that. Nothing but IP. Nothing. That is the Ready Player One hellscape. That is the dystopia. Like we're living in it. And I'm not <laughs> arguing that that's the case. I just, I don't think, I, I my counterpoint is that I do not believe that the film is actually critical of that. Yeah, see, I don't either. But pointing out like the way that uh, AI worked like you wouldn't take that movie as being happy about this future so you know i can see it in that way i got a very um verhoven adapting starship troopers feel watching that film i was like this is like working against the material visually in a way that's undercutting its message but i'm like the only person i know who interpreted it that way a lot of people hate that film so i, I mean you know it's it's a hill i'm I dying know a on lot i guess of people who really liked that movie but for the opposite reasons that's also grim that's grim in a different way. Um, I mean, I also really liked uh, Joker with Joaquin Phoenix a few years ago because it scared me and I thought it was terrifying. Um, <laughs> and I thought his performance was really creepy. And then there are people who love that movie for the exact opposite reason. Like he's giving a voice to a generation of like disaffected male youth. Uh, but which that's is, you the know, scary part, right? It is. I was going to yeah. say, I yeah. thought a lot of people took it like in the way you did. So I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I can't be responsible for how other people watch the movies I'm seeing. Yeah, I guess. No. Uh, <laughs> can only go with what I'm yeah. watching. I guess. I guess all that I'll say on the on the topic at this point is, you know, if I had had your reading of the film, I would have felt differently. But I did feel very celebratory and non-inspective to me. And considering that the larger part of the population that did enjoy the movie got had the reading that it was celebratory of this, like incestuous thoughtless you know ip driven culture you know that they're like yes i want to see the iron giant shoot a gun or whatever you know uh, that the the fact that like that is the largest voice might not mean that it's the largest representation of what people actually thought about it but it is the largest voice well it's a good thing that i rushed my review out at the time and got a four-star review of ready player one on swamplex.com in 2018 uh, so i have it on the record uh, along with a four-star review of Lords of Chaos, which is another movie people hated. Which I feel um, like I really need to scene. see now because I do also, like, once again, the aesthetic is cool. I feel like the sound is cool. But everyone in black metal it just seems like a bunch of nerds. 
I think that movie dunks on them pretty efficiently, but I also thought yeah. the Spielberg movie dunked on its subject efficiently. Uh, so maybe I was just, you know, out of my mind in 2018 and seeing what I wanted to see Uh-oh. in the pictures. Uh, Who knows? Brandon, you're the Aww. king of wishful thinking. I love that song, yeah, too. <laughs> what have y'all been watching? Hopefully better movies than me. I feel like I'm in kind of a rut. Uh, not really. For me, anyway. I, earlier today, sat down and... No surprise for anyone here at Swamplix. I watched a documentary about a volcano eruption called Volcano uh, Rescue from Fakari. And it is basically, you know, it's kind of just uh, disaster tragedy porn. It was not nearly as informative enough about the volcano that I wanted it to be, of course, because that's all I want is for things to tell me about volcanoes and science and uh, show me really cool volcano images, which there's like some really interesting footage of like from survivors, like phone cameras of the eruption. Um, So in December of 2019, this volcano, Fakari, in New Zealand erupted and killed like 22 people. There were like 47 people on the island um, at the time and 22 of them died, unfortunately. And so the ones who survived, like, a lot of them were obviously, like, tourists taking pictures, like, and so there's some really cool footage, like, looking out of the back of, like, boats evacuating them of, like, the smoke plumes and stuff and, like, views of the lake before the eruption that's just, like, the top is, like, steam and things. Um, the things that I did learn were things that were not explicitly said in the documentary. In fact, I feel like, if anything, this documentary just, like, didn't really point the finger at anyone. So, I'm going to settle this. Swaplex Court is now in session. First off, this is a stratovolcano, which is the dangerous kind, like Mount St. Helens. It's not the lava flowy kind. It's the kind that, like, blows up with the pyroclastic flow and the rocks and the ash and the steam. So, like, the really bad kind. Second off, it's the most active volcano in New Zealand. So we got two red flags there. I feel like I also saw a documentary recently that taught me about how bad this is. Yeah, uh-huh, right? Uh, the third red flag is, like, they were just, like, allowing tourists and guides and everyone, like, just regular people to go up there. And, like, their safety thing was really vague and, like, didn't really tell people full on, like, the risks of going up to an active stratovolcano, which is, like, oof. And then the third problem is they were still doing tours when the volcano as a, was at a higher than average activity level. There was like a lot of people at fault in this tourism industry and nobody is like taking the blame at all. You know, 20 people dead. And I understand that like there's a lot of different companies at play that could take the blame, but it's just like uh, frustrating. And so... Um, I just want all of you to know that I love volcanoes, um, but if I ever have the chance to go to, like, a stratovolcano and there's, like, a higher than active volcanic level, you are not getting me up there. That's not happening. Like, just don't do it, okay? I have a question. Uh, This is from last year? Yeah. So is this technically, like, a mockbuster version of Fire of Love? Like... Why was this like rushed to market? market. Yeah, at the same I don't time. know. I guess Very so. Strange. It is really strange. And like the weird, weird part is like, 
like I said, it's not really like that good unless you want to watch a lot of people talk about like how horribly they were injured and how bad it was. Which I know there's people out there that do want to hear that and watch a movie about it. And fine, good for you, but not my scene really. Um, but anyway, the craps did not die for people to be this irresponsible about volcanoes. Here, here. Now they do not let they do not take tourists up there anymore, right? Like that's no, my understanding. They don't anymore. let them up there at all anymore. No, not yeah, anymore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's done. They learned their lesson finally. And the thing about it was, like, this happened in 2019, and before this, like, the volcano had been, in, like, erupting every three years before this. So it's, like, on a pretty predictable, like, timescale, even. I don't know. Just a lot of bad, a lot of mistakes were made, and nobody has, like, taken any responsibility for them. And, I don't know, just makes me angry on these people's behalf. Like, there's gotta be, like, a volcanologist out there somewhere that's just, like, shaking their head, being like, Why? Why'd they let people do this? Um, so, uh, Boomer, please tell us that you've been watching things better than the things that we have been watching. Um, yeah, well, my mom was in town last weekend, so there were things that I have wanted to watch with her for a long time that we finally did watch. Uh, but I won't talk about them very long because they're both uh, movies and topics that we have talked about on here or in our prose reviews, or on the other podcast many times. It was Get Out and Knives Out. My mom had not seen either of them, and we watched them, and she loved them both. Uh, she liked Get Out more, I think. Nice. And I think probably maybe the issue with Knives Out was that we had already watched the first two episodes of Poker Face before I showed her Knives Out. So she was like, she was looking for other things, but she did enjoy them both. Um, and she, of course, loved Poker Face as well. Um, Two other things that I watched, one of them uh, has already had its review posted. It was the 2010 film Arietti, uh, which I refuse to call The Secret World of Arietti because I think that title is dumb. <laughs> but I really loved it. I grew up watching the, you know, reading the Borrowers books, watching Honey, I Shrunk I the Kids. Small things. That, it's, that is my jam. We have talked about this before. It is my jam. I don't know why I never saw this movie before other than the fact that, like, it came out when I was finishing grad school, so I never got the chance to see it. Uh, there was supposed to be a film, like a like a projected version of it at a local cinema, but I was having trouble with <laughs> my movie pass. So I just left and went and watched it on the streaming service formerly known as HBO Max. Uh, and I still loved it at home. And while I was at home, I got to pause it every once in a while and pull out my copy of the borrower's books. And I was like, that's them in the kettle. Look at this illustration <laughs> to the person who was watching it with me. So, you know, not a bad uh, film going experience. I also watched for the first time last week a movie called Gross Point Blank. Are we familiar? Yeah, that's definitely like uh, a movie I saw in high school and I thought was so cool at the time. Well, it is so cool. It is? I can't yes, imagine it holds up. it holds up. up. It's so good. It's so funny. Um, one of my friends that was watching it with us, he described it as like watching a show that was on its, like a comedy that's on its fifth season and they're just firing on all cylinders at that point. It was so funny that like there were jokes that I know I miss. Like I know that this is a movie I'm going to have to rewatch because I was laughing so hard at some of the jokes in it that I must have missed some of the other ones. Uh, for our listeners, this is a 1997 film in which John Cusack uh, plays a professional assassin who goes home for his 10-year high school reunion and tries to emotionally reconnect 
with the woman that he stood up on prom night, played by Minnie Driver, who is so fucking cute in this movie. She is <laughs> so engaging. She is so cute. She is so beautiful. She is so funny and charming. I could not believe it. I wanted I wanted to be her and to date her. Like, I loved this movie. It was so funny. I loved the action in it. Um, it really feels like it was way ahead of its time as far as like being like a really witty, subversive, subtle humor uh, tied with like, you know, action violence. Like Barry only exists because this movie was made. You know what I mean? Yeah, I only think of it as like of its time because I was kind of lumping in with all those like post Pulp Fiction gangster comedies where it's like people between jobs being sarcastic and vulgar and then shooting guns. Um, but maybe with more of like a Gen X malaise than most of those movies. But like I said, it's been so long. Big recommend from me, to be honest. Okay. It's so funny. Everyone is so hilarious. Joan Cusack is great. John Cusack is pretty good. As someone who has watched Say Anything more times than I can count, legitimately more times than I can count, this is the most handsome John Cusack has ever been, I think. <laughs> Like, he's not got that Lloyd Dobler say anything kind of like boyish cuteness. There are moments in this movie at certain angles. I'm like, oh, my God, he's so dashing, like absolutely wonderful. I love all of the bits. There's a really great action sequence in the middle where um, another assassin goes at Cusack in this like convenience store that is standing where his childhood home was. And, you know, it's sort of a cheap gag that there's like, oh, the burnout employee who's got his headphones in and he's playing an arcade game and he doesn't hear like the giant shootout that's going on around him. It seems like a cliche, but this movie does it so perfectly. And there are other things in this movie that would be cliche if they weren't being done so well and with so much fun and so much style and aplomb. And again, just charm. I don't think I've ever watched a movie where I was like, oh, Jeremy Piven is great in this. I don't think that's ever <laughs> happened before. Uh, other than maybe his, like, to circle back on the Cameron Kerr thing with Say Anything, he has a, he's like a cashier in Singles who has, like, a one, like, one scene in that, and he's fine in it. But, like, everyone is great in this movie. Dan Aykroyd is wandering around spouting off these nonsense conspiracy theories that may actually be things that Dan Aykroyd believes. Yeah, they were just filming him on set. Yeah. <laughs> Just a wonderful, funny, charming uh, action comedy that I would give it five stars. This is a five-star movie for me. Big recommend. Um, I haven't written copy about it because I was just like, how can I? Like, it would just be like, Mini Driver is gorgeous. Mini Driver is adorable. I want to be Mini Driver for like 500 words. <laughs> I will big up our sister podcast, We Love to Watch. Just did an entire... A month of John Cusack movies. Uh, their gross point blank episode is two hours long, so I assume they say more than just they love Mini Driver, but I'm sure that that is repeated. I mean, they could just say that for two hours straight. I could. <laughs> I did. And during this movie, every time she was on screen, I was like, she is so cute. She's so beautiful. And her comedic timing is fucking killer. Absolutely delightful. 
I didn't listen to that one because I haven't seen the movie in so long, but I, I did listen to their uh, Better Off Dead and Say Anything episodes, and they were both excellent. And I think probably the best two John Cusack movies. I, I was going to say, I, had, I hadn't even seen Better Off Dead until last year. So Love that movie. It's great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and then the, the last thing that I saw just two days ago, and I'm going to preface this just like I did my written review of this. I did not financially contribute to this film. I cannot explain the details. I didn't sign a non-disclosure agreement, but it was implied. And I don't want to like out myself as a person who attended this screening um, for fear that it could cause trouble for the person who brought me. But I was taken uh, to a screening of The Flash that Warner Brothers footed the bill for. So I did not contribute to this money's this movie's box office or even its viewing numbers. Most of America didn't either. It, uh, it bombed pretty hard for their standards this weekend. And you know what? Good. Yep. Good. In my opinion, good. Yeah. Unbelievable that this movie went out to theaters with its current star. Yep. And even more unbelievable once you've seen it and you're like, wow, this is what they were trying to keep. Like they put this into theaters with special effects that are so bad that it's like, you really you wanted to rush this out now with its current star so that people could see this movie with fucking Christopher Reeves. Like, I, I guess spoiler uh, alert for anybody who's listening, you know, skip ahead to the time code there in the description. Brandon always includes what movies we're talking about. So just skip ahead. At one point they're doing like a multiversal collapse. And so you look out and you see like all these other, you know, universes, which by the way, not to carry water for the CW, but their crisis on infinite earths did this before and better like four or five years ago. Um, but you look out into these multiple, like this multiverse and you can see these other universes, including like reanimating the poor corpse of Christopher Reeve and George Reeves, who played the original like Superman on the black and white television program. And, and they even reanimated the corpse of Helen Slater and she's not dead. Like, that woman's alive. You could have gotten her in there. I didn't see any of those. That's pretty grim and egregious. But uh, I did see the image of a de-aged, quote-unquote, Nicolas Cage. Uh, so bad. Just, like, <laughs> graphic design is my passion level uh, <laughs> rendering of his face in that. Look, it's bad. That is in there. And, you know, I included this in my review. It's been It's very famous that there's this one... Hollywood producer who every adaptation of everything he's ever done, he tries to get a giant spider into. Yeah. I, I can't remember his actual name, but he is the person who is portrayed in Licorice Pizza by um, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper's <laughs> character in Le uh, Licorice Pizza is this person. He did eventually get his way, too. Right, in Wild Wild West. And then again in this movie. <laughs> this is the movie where, I guess, like as a joke, for people who understand that, like, that's a deep cut. Like, that is the deepest of cuts. It's like a reference to a movie that was never made with a sequence that one person was constantly fighting for. And it's, like, unbelievable that, like, they want to play on that nostalgia factor so much. And yet, in doing so, they just trot it out. Like, like I didn't really necessarily find the de-aged Grand Moff Tarkin that distracting or the de-aged princess leia that distracting or whatever because like they're not on screen for very long they're these characters are on screen for long enough that you're staring into their soulless 
CGI golem eyes. And it's supposed to be like really like captivating and thrilling, you know? You hear that like 1970s Superman March opening, and you're like, oh, they want me to be having a very different reaction to this that I'm having. They they want me to be like, ooh, this is so cool. But all I can think about is like, we are in hell. Um, and I don't <laughs> I don't really know what to do with that. And it's not just those characters either. It's like very clear that when Ezra at one point in this movie, again, we're already in spoiler territory, but uh Ezra Miller's Barry Allen character travels back in time to save his mother from being killed he tries to come back to the present and gets stuck in 2013 so he's like stuck concurrent with the Zack snyder man of steel movie and is interacting with his younger self and they don't differentiate them at all except with a haircut like there is no attempt to de-age the younger barry even though even though Whenever you see the two of them next to each other on screen, it's always like really, really, really obvious which one of them is the stand in. And like, look, I'm not a person who is like watches most of these movies with bad CGI. And that's the most memorable thing to me. People have been complaining about the CGI in Black Widow for years now. And I've seen that movie like at least twice. And I still am not really entirely sure what it is that they're talking about. But in this movie, it's so omnipresent. And like one of the the ways that they depict, you know, Barry traveling through time is that he's in like this bubble and he's surrounded in sort of like a um, amphitheater type structure, sort of sort of like a shadow box kind of thing, you know, where not shadow box, but the thing that, you know, pre-animation, it was something that you would put a candle inside of and it would spin and it would like create images on the wall. It's like a zoetrope or some... some... Yes, he's like in a sort of zoetrope amphitheater type thing. And all of the... It's like he's seeing all of these past events and all of those look very much like porcelain figurines that have been glazed. And I understand that like that might be a choice. Like it might be a choice to, to show them that way. Like, you know, prepare the bell... In Star Trek Four, when they are traveling back through uh, time, um, they have that weird sort of psychedelic sequence where all of the people are, all of the the crew are like, you know, in this like white void and these weird forms of their faces emerge from the void. Again, I think that it's like trying to do a thing when Barry is in the like time amphitheater or whatever. But whenever it's supposed to be like, you know, Christopher Reeve, it looks so soulless and it's so corporate and it's so creepy where it's they clearly had time to reshoot shoot this movie and remove Ezra Miller from this movie and recast them. But they didn't. They rushed this movie out with them in this movie and with these special effects in this movie. And I do not understand why it is completely bananas to me. And the worst part about it is that I still enjoyed it. Like I, I'm not gonna give it. <laughs> I'm not gonna give it a recommendation. Um, you can, you know, you can read in my review about what I think about that. We do not condone piracy, wink. But I'm glad that this movie is tanking at the box office. Hopefully, that means it gets to home video sooner, so that people can acquire it uh, in some way that does not that that clearly makes a statement to the studio that hey. Um, if you put Ezra Miller in a movie, we do not want to see them. 
they're an alleged criminal and we believe the allegations. So that's what I'll say. I still, I still have, I leaned over to the person that I was with and I was like, I hate what a good time I'm having watching this movie. And maybe (laughs) upon a second watch, I wouldn't, maybe I would hate it even more. Everything looks awful and I still really enjoyed it. And I recommend that you watch it in a way that contributes to it the least, if at all, when you get the chance to. Yizhny Miesto started to be built after Second World War to accommodate all the workers that started to arrive to the Czechoslovakian capital. Of course, the bright paint on the facades of the buildings was added relatively recently. The original buildings were not as colorful. That's better. But the developers weren't fast enough to finish the facilities in the new neighborhood and first people who moved here basically lived on the construction site. They didn't even have any roads around their houses, just soil plowed by the trucks. This period became to be known as the time of boots and mud and was immortalized in the movie Panel Story. Today, around 80,000 Praguers live in Yizhny Miesto. And unlike similar housing estates in the other European countries, this one is still thriving. Hello! Dobry den! Ahoy! I made people watch a Czech movie today. A very confusingly titled Czech movie, so it's either called Prefab Story, if you're the Criterion channel. If you're Czech, it is Panel Story, Anevjak Serori Sidliste. If uh, you're the rest of the internet, it's called Panel Story or Birth of a Community, and it is from 1979. It's this movie that is set in Prague post Prague Spring. It's the outside of Prague. So there's been some economic reforms. People can get some things and have a touch of consumerism, but there's still the very Soviet energy going on. And we are in this movie in one of these housing projects, one of the huge big block projects that uh, you will find all over this part of the world. And it currently it's in shambles. Um, it's unfinished. It was supposed to be finished five years ago, according to one character in the movie. It's supposed to be finished in three days, according to the boss of the construction company. It's not anywhere near that. The infrastructure is non-existent. There's no roads. There's not even a stairwell to get into one of the buildings. It's just like this constant gag of like all of the things that just aren't working in this place and we're following a lot of different characters here and kind of just the community as a whole but there's like three main viewpoints that i noticed and kind of found interesting um two in particular though uh the first viewpoint that i thought was really interesting and kind of funny is this um like he can't be older than seven or eight year old delinquent who like runs away from school and just spends his whole day wandering around his like housing development in progress, causing havoc, generally just being a kid, playing around the construction equipment, committing property He's damage. Trying to steal a gift for his dad's trying birthday to steal a or gift, something like that. Gift for his dad who he hasn't seen in a while is coming back. That whole story is not really cleared up at all. Um, yeah, so he's also, like, emulating a lot of the adults around him. Um, you know, he's using foul language. He's 
just like slacking off around places. He's digging through the trash. He's well, at some point he's uh tasked with doing the recycling outside of a grocery store for money, um, because he's trying to make money as well to buy his dad a gift if he doesn't steal it first. And then a little bit later on in the movie, he steals a baby stroller and finds um, stacks of magazine that were supposed to be sold at this little kiosk on the ground and steals them away in the baby carriage to take to be recycled. And I think in very like kid fashion, like he's very confused why, you know, when he's behaving like exactly like all the adults around him, like why he keeps getting in trouble and like all of this stuff. And I thought that was kind of a funny journey to watch. Um, the second sort of um, frame that we have is a mother and her like probably like 19 year old daughter who just found out she's pregnant. And so we get the mother's side where she is from this world that was kind of before and then after, you know, all of this Soviet takeover stuff. She's obviously like really into the rights that women have gotten really wants the best for her daughter now that she has like the ability to go to school to be a doctor and her daughter just has this like idealized world of being able to live in comfort in her new apartment building with her baby and her boyfriend as her husband and she has a friend that she meets who has this ideal life um, that she eventually finds out is very much just fantasy. And then the last, like, super interesting uh, point of view that I found is there is an old man who comes to visit his fam family. He's here from the countryside. He's sort of an outsider to this world. He's obviously, like, much older from, like, a much different time period. Um, he's walking around this very big, bulky alienating housing project but like he also just kind of is a busybody and he's kind of in everybody's business he just kind of is like walking around saying like good day to like everybody and just trying to like butt into people's lives um he becomes fixated on this one old woman he sees sitting in front of her window thinking oh she's ill and she's lonely and she must be sick and doesn't anybody care? And of course, all the neighbors are like, it's not our business. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so he's got that whole attitude and wonders, like, what do people do about the old people here? Like, what's going on here? Isn't there, like, community here? Which is, you know, funny because we see all the ways that they're connected and all the ways that them kind of being connected in some ways is good and in other ways is a little bit of a, a nightmare because it's this forced connection based off of this housing project. So I think it's kind of the idea of this big space that you're forcing people into out of some ideal that is nothing like the ideal. And I had some fun with this. I thought there were some some fun moments in here. What did y'all think? Did any of the like weird little stories stick out to y'all i mean there's a lot of characters yes and some of them are very funny um yes. i found the old man annoying but yeah. i think that's kind of the point really yeah that sort of like busybodiness. Mm -hmm. um i think you're supposed to sort of admire his like sense of community but also kind of find him a little irritating yeah but i think 
focusing on the characters and how all of them are connected and everything like that is like something I only did the second time I watched it. Mm-hmm. The first time I was just sort of like completely crushed by the visual aesthetic and the editing yeah. style. Mm-hmm. So this is from the director of Daisies and I think carries over a lot of that quick cut absurdist editing and camera movement. Um, but I think pushed into like a kind of dizzying effect. Uh, there's a lot of discordant jazz. Yeah. Strange, horrific sounds with no consistent sense of like rhythm or time signature. So every shot, I want to say for at least the first 30 minutes, is just like a camera swinging wildly around mud and trash and up these buildings and all this laundry drying on the balconies and people falling down and uh, fucking up and this little kid smashing stuff and pulling <laughs> things out of the trash. And it's like so dizzying and unnerving. And actually, I feel like reminded me of what being... I know it's very specific to this one time in Czech history, but like just being around on foot as a pedestrian in an urban space yeah. feels kind of like chaotic and um, yeah. all the construction and stuff. It just feels like at any point the world is like trying to kill you. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it's very like loud and distracting and like difficult to focus on any one detail because there's like so much going on at all times. Also, you know, I think we all have had someone who lives in like one of those crappy apartments in like a huge building you're like oh oh god i mean even just like taking a bus downtown in any major city and like walking on foot from your bus stop to your destination Mm -hmm. we we live in a nation that's built for cars and not for foot traffic so like i guess you could read this as a specific dig on like soviet greed and like how the money is not distributed well to take care of the people but like i don't think that's that different from like capitalist greed and how the money's not distributed well to take care of the people so like traveling by foot down these like highways and sidewalks that are not well kept um especially in new orleans like the sidewalks are all busted up from like oak tree roots and whatever else uh (laughs) and you're basically like forced to like Walk in mud, walk in the highway, walk into traffic, you know, avoid potholes. Oh my God. This just like gave me the feeling of walking around in a city in a way that I feel like few movies have captured. Uh, so that it took me like until the second time to really focus on all the different relationships and characters and get a clearer picture of how everyone's connected. Yeah. So I'm glad I watched it twice, basically. It's very dense. It is really dense. Yeah. Sorry. It's a really I dense movie. To... I really enjoyed it. I, I forgot to mention that it was directed by Vera Kiloa of Daisies. So thank you for, for correcting that mistake. So what I really loved about this is, you know, you do see these sort of mega structures a lot. They are very common. They're very common now in the city where I live, where we are in the middle of a housing crisis. So more and more of these are going up. But unfortunately, they are not being presented necessarily as affordable housing. In many cases, they're still going to like the upper percentage of earners. Um, as opposed to these, which in many ways seem to be just kind of like they're available for people because it's living under a communist system. It's an imperfect one and like a Soviet one, but it is one in which, you know, the people living there, there are doctors and there are teachers and there are nurses and there are also just like homemakers, right? Like it's not, it's not strictly class divided the way that we often see these structures to be now. Um, where you'll have one building that's entirely just for like, you know, it's a, what they call a Coventry house or whatever, or, and one of them is, you know, 
better and more spacious and it's specifically for like i don't know tech bros but everywhere you look it's just mud it's just mud and like digging and constant commotion there's never like a silent moment for anyone ever uh and that's one of the things that i thought was really interesting here is like everyone is constantly surrounded by these large pieces of like you know big heavy construction machinery and the screaming of children um one of my favorite moments was when um the girl who has just been like slapped by her mother in the supermarket unfortunately i didn't uh retain anyone's names sonia when she when she goes with her friend who is like yeah quit school have a baby live on that you know live off of your husband it's the best thing that i ever did and then she takes they go to like she tries to show off what a great life it is but really you know her life with her husband is miserable and when she tries to go to the nurse's office, she has to, you know, she has no ability to like skip the line. She's trying to create this image for her friend that she has reached a level of success that she has not achieved. But also she's trying to convince herself. And that's a very fascinating like character moment. But right outside of this like children's health center, there are so, so many screaming babies. There's so many of them, just prams full of babies screaming and it just really is like you know this would be a horrible place to live or to be like i don't blame the old man for thinking like oh it would be really great to go and live in what seems like a walkable community um with my you know daughter and her family so that i can be close to them and then getting there and it's just a constant like cacophony and you know he does he could stand to mind his own business more so i understand that but part of the idea for me is that he comes from i don't think that it is generational in reality a lot of it is geographical a lot of it is about how you were raised presuming the universality of any generation is always like a fallacy in my opinion but he talks about how to him and his generation there was a much greater sense of community whenever you met people and how the young people don't seem to think that but he does meddle like he sees this woman and just gets all up in her business and spends the whole day trying to convince like an authority figure to break in there, even though like <laughs> and it freaks her the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she seems to be having the best life possible for her. I mean, we don't I don't have a lot of sympathy for her because, you know, she's a racist. But <laughs> it's interesting that it starts out kind of weird, like she's a racist, but then she finds out like the Africa connection and like. It seems like she's like earnestly is just old. She's racist in the way that she thinks that a man from Africa knows every person on the yeah. on the continent of Africa. It was it was kind of a moment where I was like, this is the sort of racism where somebody just hasn't really been given a chance to be not racist in a way. Uh, I mean, you have to wonder how many non-white people she's interacted with in her entire life. Yeah, although her son place. sounds pretty bad. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. To to circle back on the the old man, I. I'm with him insofar as, you know, he wants what is objectively a community um, that is currently not networking the way that it ought to, but when it is literally a community and he wants it to be more of what we understand a community to be. Uh, yeah. And when he finds that that's not the case, he's just like, I'm just going to go back to my cottage, you know, I'm going to go back to where I belong. And I don't blame him for that. And I found that a really interesting like character moment for him. But also I love the grandson who's just like 
he's living his best life too. He's like, I'm just working at the store. I'm just hanging out with my gal pal. Hanging out at the store, hanging out with my girlfriend. Like, yeah, and you kind of you kind of assume the worst of him. Like he's gonna make like a terrible decision when he finds out that his girlfriend's pregnant, and it's gonna kind of like ruin the whole life yeah. that she's kind of envisioning for herself. But the movie actually ends on this like really sweet romantic moment. Yeah. Um, as the sun's setting on the prefabricated community. And uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like a hopeful note to end on where it's like there will be a next generation of people who like care for each other and aren't entirely selfish. I, I feel I feel like his um, role was very like periphery. And then at the end, he kind of comes around and like, I don't know, it brings a little note of hope for the whole thing to end on. Well, I mean, his boss just kept pushing him around, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> really have a chance. <laughs> I will say, too, I, uh, I watched a YouTube clip of someone who lives in one of these housing projects in Prague right yeah, now. Yeah, I was going to say, it's still there. And the way that she was positioning it, and take this um, with a grain of salt because I got it from a YouTube influencer. Yeah. <laughs> so they are not to be trusted. But uh, the, basically the way she was saying is like, a lot of these European housing projects that were funded by these communist programs mm-hmm. were defunded. You know, like if you look at the ones at the edge of Paris or London or something like that, they're basically where immigrant communities are sort of like pushed uh, with no funding for upkeep. And they're just sort of like let to rot the same way that like New Orleans has sort of let New Orleans East just completely go stale without any like funding yeah. or attention. Um, but in her view, the Prague ones that we're looking at here are actually a long-term success story. They're thriving communities where like artists can affordably live, uh, cool people mixed with like yeah. older generations in these very tight knit close quarters communities. And it's like a very happening place to be. It's like seen as like an aspirational thing almost. Yeah. It's called uh Yizhny Mesto. Uh, and the term she used for the time that this was filmed uh, was the time of boots and mud, which I thought was very poetic. Uh, it feels like a term from like hundreds of years ago. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's just like an infrastructure fuck up where like they just didn't have all the infrastructure in place yet. Like no roads or just even a, like a solid ground to stand on outside of these housing blocks and know where to differentiate which one was which. So like. A lot of the old man's journey early in the film was just trying to even find where he's supposed to be living, which I'm sure was frustrating to the point where he's like, I don't want to fucking live here if I can't even tell what building I'm supposed to be in for half a day. So, yeah, it it is like it is a hopeful story long term, I think. But I do like that in a documentary sense, they thought to get the cameras in there when it was still under construction like this and really push how loud and chaotic and disorienting living in this sort of like limbo between these buildings that are both finished and unfinished was, and it feels like an infinite construction yeah. nightmare that honestly feels true to like living in a yeah. city right now. I'm remembering right now, like COVID early pandemic, like 2020 ish, uh, you know, a lot of work from home was happening. So the city funded tons of construction projects all at once. So if you were one of the unlucky few people who had to go downtown, um, which I was, on like a weekly to daily basis, everywhere was just like inaccessible by foot, barely accessible by car, because every single surface in the city was like under construction. And it's like, I feel like I've actually lived through the time of boots and mud myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But just on a uh, maybe a, a little more navigatable scale than this. 
Yeah. One thing that I was surprised by and something that I thought was going on was uh, every time we see this child clambering around, um, going from place to place, just causing mischief, they would also always show lots of footage of those like bulldozers and uh, other pieces of heavy machinery where I did think this might be headed towards like a tragic ending. Yeah. Um, I didn't expect it to be so baby's day out, but I, every time it's like, Oh, here's this kid. He's wandering around in like a mud hole with no visibility from the outside, picking up a bunch of comic books or magazines or whatever to try and get some, some kroners to like buy a birthday present for his father. And it's just like, that child is going to die. Like, there's all this equipment around. There's all these people wandering around. They're all doing all this, like, you know, lifting. And they're, I mean, every time I saw them picking up one of the panels, I was like, is it going to fall? I kept expecting it. It never happened, which, I mean, it made for a funnier movie. I don't think that the comedy would properly end with the death of a four-year-old child, but. I never took it that way. I took it as, like, them playing in the mud with their expensive, loud, large toys was like him playing in the mud with his yeah. toys. There's a visual association that, like, what he was doing, just dicking around and not accomplishing anything, was, like, similar to what the construction workers were doing um, between their rounds at the pub, where they were, like, not even working during the daylight hours to get this wrapped up. Right. I uh, I guess so. I Especially whenever he was, like, dropping things into the tar for the, like, steamroller to roll over <laughs> it. It's like, that child is going to get flattened. He's going to get flattened. And then, you know, he turned out to be fine by the end. Classic little kid behavior. I was going to say, day. he's definitely living, like, there's a kid that I watch and have watched for years now. And he's living that kid's dream life, honestly. Anytime there's, like, construction equipment around, I have to, like, go walk and see it. That's like the thing. So, yeah, having throwing toys underneath the steamroller was really so good. What I found really funny was just how difficult people just walking was. Like, it reminded me of those YouTube infomercial compilations that are just people fucking up yes. before the product saves the day. Like, so many shots of just someone stumbling in the mud or like dropping something in their kitchen or like a piece of furniture falling apart. But just sort of randomly cut in with all the other chaos because, uh, you know, the score had a discordant note that uh, she wanted to echo in the visuals. And I just found that very funny, like how much of it is just compilations of failure and like clumsiness because this is like an unlivable environment. Uh, that cracked me up every single time it happened. Yeah. The scene where she falls in the hole in the basement. Just... <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, like, what is that doing there? And the elevator. Oh, It's very easy to see the connection of this with daisies yeah. because the editing in particular is so playfully experimental and it's so tied to the sort of whims of the score. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know which was created first, but it feels like they're kind of in communication with each other. And the movie, I guess, has a narrative where all these like characters sort of come together and you get their connections by the end. Yeah. But uh, more it just felt like, you know, movements in a music piece than it felt like a story being told but not in a way that i think ever comes across as particularly pretentious uh even though it is experimental like i don't know daisies to me is like almost like live action looney tunes even though it is an art film yeah i don't i don't think of her movies like as being pretentious at all like i said i feel like even this one as you know kind of a little bit i guess dark as it gets like it still has that like whimsy and that bit of like just poking fun at 
like all of itself you know like you said like the looney tunes like slapstick stuff that happens is just yeah, yeah. just people falling down is funny it's yeah. basically like america's funniest home videos clips i wish i had a bigger sense of like what her art is like i feel like she's the kind of director that almost on like a curation level there are certain directors that made like one movie that always makes those like the craziest movies you've never seen lists yeah. but like nobody digs further into their back catalogs so like the guy who made tampopo or the guy who made possession or house yeah. these are directors where like those are some of the best movies i've ever seen and it's it's almost embarrassing that I haven't like dug further in their catalogs. And then you start to realize that like that stuff just wasn't even really made available until very recently. Like the Criterion Channel has a bunch of movies from the Tampopo director recently, but I don't even think uh, I think Boomer saw one of the guy who made Possessions other movies before in the theater that's not commercially available right now if you wanted to watch it at home. Are we talking about Silver Globe? Yeah, Silver Globe. So, like, I, I couldn't, you know, fire that up on my TV right now if I wanted to uh, because it's just not right. well-programmed the way that, like, Possession has probably 30 different Blu-ray reissues on the market uh, simultaneously because it sells. So, I don't know. It's cool that there are more movies from her out there now, but I feel like Daisy's was the only one that was even really presented to, like, the American public for the longest time. Yeah, like, I don't know. I'm really, um, really glad that they have been doing this and have been, like, putting out more and more things from especially like women directors that have otherwise not gotten a whole lot of you know releases i mean i feel like that's kind of what we've been focused on a lot lately what with like kamikaze hearts and ears and i do appreciate something like this after flaming ears for being more conceptually coherent like uh you watch enough of these like experimental art films back to back and it's hard to tell quality after a while until you see someone do it exactly right. Yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, this person knew what they were doing. They knew how to tell, if not a clear story, at least like a clear idea was communicated. Where like, I feel like Flaming Ears was more like, uh, we're just trying stuff and seeing what sticks. Uh, I, I didn't get the sense of that from this at all. I felt like this was very well executed version of what it was supposed to be. While still being playful and experimental. Like they're really just chasing whims uh, yeah. with the, the way that the score matches the visuals. And the sort of repetition of the uh, concrete panels being assembled in these different housing blocks. One more thing visually I thought this did really well was like using the um, gridded out structure of those housing blocks. Like using that to look like comic book panels in that um, Hitchcock rear window yeah. style where you're sort of voyeuristically looking at like a dozen different people's lives simultaneously playing out in these little rigid little boxes. Especially in the opening overture, there's like a lot of that kind of voyeurism. I thought that was very cool visually. I mean, that's like the tone of the movie is just like so well set from that opening bit with her. They're in, they're in this taxi. The old man's trying to find his family's house, and nobody knows where the block is because they all look the same. And his uh, daughter over the phone is like, "It's the one with all the different colored laundry out near the near the grocery store." And then they look up. And there's just like every balcony has laundry on it, just like everywhere. There, there were an awful lot of discussions about how much people enjoy doing laundry now. Like, <laughs> like they were talking about it like we talk about smartphones. That old man was like, oh, these people, they love their laundry. They have automated laundry machines. Now they do their laundry <laughs> all the time. They love it too much. 
doing laundry is fun for them now. I don't think laundry has ever been fun. It's definitely more fun. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely uh, not less fun to be able to throw it into, you know, a washing machine. I, um, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a weird little tangent like I like to do. And I'll talk about, uh, right after I had my accident where my leg was pinned and I was like unable to walk at that same time, our washing machine in our apartment broke and it was, Oh, I could not send my clothing out to be like laundered. Like that is a service that's available in my city, but my laundry, like my clothing was biohazardous. It was full of like gunk that I won't describe further than just saying gunk. And I had no ability to wash my clothes. So I was like, you know, I couldn't leave my building. I couldn't do my laundry. And at one point, I actually, I had to buy a washboard because they were dragging their heels because all landlords are scum. They were dragging their heels on trying to get a new washing machine into the apartment. And I had no clothing. Everything was covered in blood and gore. And I had to get a washboard to wash my own clothes. It's definitely um, more fun to have a washing machine than that. But I still don't think that doing laundry is ever fun. That was the kind of things that were like annoying about him to me. It was like kids these days kind of complaints like that were kind of endless. <laughs> and sometimes he had a point. But uh, I feel like he never really met his perfect companion until he teamed up with a little kid. And I think like, they balanced each other out very well. Where the kid like didn't really know what he was talking about. So it didn't really entertain his like nosiness. Yes. and. He was just like constantly horrified by the kid's poor behavior in a way that was like comically funny. Very Dennis the Menace and Mr. Wilson uh, energy between the two of them. Yeah, that child was very funny. Yeah. And I'm very glad he wasn't flattened by a steamroller or <laughs> captured by, um, I guess there's a loose stare, uh, I guess literally <laughs> and figuratively, metaphorically in this movie. Um, we're familiar with this term, right? Are we talking about just like a loose board on uh, stairs? I'm, I'm... So uh, psychologically, a loose stair refers to someone originally referred simply to someone in a community that everyone knows is to be avoided, you know, <laughs> whether it be. Oh, the weird guy. Yeah. So there's like, you know, and it eventually came to largely be mostly associated with people that are known within the community as being like sex pests. It's like, yeah, uh, it's like a loose stair. And going down to the basement, if you live there, you know about it and you know how to avoid it and how to be careful. But if someone doesn't know, they could really hurt themselves. And so that's where this term comes from. And there is a and correct me if I'm wrong. The creepy guy is also um, girl who got slapped friend's husband, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's weird. Um, Very. Yeah. Maybe no wonder they're having marital problems. He's a he's a pest. And although we never really like you know see him do anything he does chase that boy for reasons unknown so yeah it's interesting that there is a loose stare in this in this movie because it is about a community and and you know a loose stare now is is different from what it meant when the term was first coined um and i read about it years ago because that it could also just be like you know as an example i was at a an estate sale yesterday and there was someone in the neighborhood who had these like two speakers that were bound by like a bungee cord and they were swinging them around like nunchucks and going up and down the street, not hurting anybody, but definitely someone that you're like, mm, I should maybe not interact with this person. And in, in my opinion, you know, somebody has got to keep it weird. They were kind of making fun of him in the estate sale line. And I, I stuck up for him as much as I could by being like, yeah, somebody has got to keep it weird in this city. 
but yeah. that could be a loose stare too. It could just be someone in the community that like everybody knows not to interact with them, not because they're a pest necessarily, but because like, you know, you might get trapped into a, an hours long conversation about how Freemasons run the country or, you know, the fluoride in the water allows people to control our vaccines or whatever. Um, and so it is interesting that like you have this opportunity where you're like, yes, every part of the community is there, even the parts that we don't um, we wish we could all do without in society, including sex pests. But uh, it was an interesting inclusion of that element. And I um, just wanted to point that out. But what are what are some favorite like visual gags that y'all y'all found? I, I have mine, which is when the people coming to look at their apartment you mentioned this earlier, there's not a stairwell. They have to climb up half a stair and then climb across onto a completed stair to get up into the space where the apartment is supposed to be completed. I really enjoyed <laughs> watching those people like yeah. having to kind of climb up a ladder and then turn around and step across to a stairwell. It was very, it was very um, Swiss Family Robinson to me. All the women who insisted on wearing heels in these conditions was cracking me up yes. too. Uh, like wearing these dainty little like seventies kitsch outfits in the time of boots and mud where they're like walking on these like boards that are sort of precariously stuck in mud or like, you know, stepping over a gap where there should be a stair. And it's like, you are increasing the likelihood you're about to fall on your face <laughs> because you can't um, go outside in like sensible shoes. Um, Cause you wouldn't be caught dead. I guess the part that made me laugh the most was when, the boy and the older man are trying to get the attention of the medical authorities to go check on that old woman who should be left alone. And uh, the old man knocks on the door and he's like, oh, they're not in there. I guess their hours are off, you know, like uh, they, they left her for the day. Oh, that was like the housing authority. Yeah. Oh, it was the housing authority. Right. They, they already tried yeah. the hospital. So they go to the admin instead. And um, immediately the boy's response is just throw a rock through the window <laughs> with like no chill. <laughs> It did not help. Um, I liked the lady that was, like, living in the apartment that was being shown. So, like, as they were, like, going from room to room, she's, like, hustling from room to room. I don't know if y'all caught that. Like, the one that was living in the empty apartment that wasn't supposed to be lived <laughs> in. Like, that was the apartment that was being shown. That's funny. I had a scumbag real estate person try to show me an apartment that someone was living in. And they wanted oh us God. to lie and say that we were like there for another purpose that wasn't buying the house, that we would then have to evict them because we were going to move into it. Unbelievable. We were like, Fuck that. Yeah. Anyway, I, I didn't buy that house. <laughs> but uh, good on her for getting around that. Well, it sounds like we heartily recommend this one, which is yeah. good after the Flaming Ears discussion last time. We talked about an experimental movie that like... I think was cautiously recommended. Yeah. This is a more wholly successful work, I think. And honestly, we've been like retreating into these Criterion Channel picks, these like older experimental style art films. And then meanwhile, in the what have you been watching opening segments, complaining about how everything new is trash and we're not interested in any of it. Uh, I want to uh, course correct a little bit. So next episode, I'm making everyone watch new releases from this year. Kind of like a halfway end of the year, catch up on stuff that we think we would actually enjoy to bring some positivity in the fact that there are people are making new interesting films that are out there. They're just not necessarily allowed space to breathe during the summer when there's like $200 million 
behemoths that have to like recoup all their money back on the opening weekend so they eat up every screen in the nation do y'all have like a favorite movie from this year so far it might be megan <laughs> i had a lot of fun watching megan i can't i can't turn my nose up at that let me see let me look at my list oh the only thing i okay uh i guess Bo is afraid actually probably that topped megan for me i have megan in my top 10 so far but I've many movies ahead of it. Uh, on my list, you know, I, I keep a list. I've just organized it for 2023. I've done rings, you know, highest to lowest. I've got Bo is Afraid, Scream 6, <laughs> Megan, Magic Might's Last Dance, John Wick 4, uh, Blind Willow, Sleeping Woman, Master Gardener, and Cocaine Bear are my top uh, eight. That's where it starts to kind of turn around. I'll tell you, my bottom two right now are Power Rangers Once and Always and Ant-Man. <laughs> Boomer, I have seen about 30 movies from this year so far. I have no overlap with you except for Megan. So I guess that is our dual recommendation from this year so far. I'm okay with that. So, uh, you know, preview for December, January period where we're wrapping up the best movies of 2023. Early lead in the race is Megan for the movie of the year. I see the clouds that move across the you